All right, find the first psalm, Psalm 1. Uh, instead of diving right back into another full book study, as we usually do uh, since we've come up, come up to these summer months, uh, Jason and I talked about this, discussed it, and, and decided our series for this summer would be a summer in psalms. And so we're going to just pick 10 or 11 maybe of our favorite psalms and preach through those in the next couple months. And then Lord willing, in August, we'll pick up with another new, uh, another new book. Of course, I love the book of Psalms. I think with Romans, it's probably my favorite. Romans and Psalms are probably my two favorite books. But um, there's always something here, right, in God's Word to see. And looking at the first psalm, which is, again, one of my favorites, and that's why I chose it first, to me it really is a, a great introductory psalm to the other 149. Uh, someone once described it like a foyer. You walk into a foyer of a church or a place, and you... It kind of introduces you to the building, right? And that's what Psalm 1 does. It really introduces us to what the others kind of talk about in a sense. And I think if you can learn, if we can learn about the God that the psalmists write about, if we can learn about this God and learn how they experienced and went through their different situations, then it's going to help us live a more godly life, a more... Uh, more pleasing life in the sight of God. And so that's our goal as we dive through these, these psalms the next couple of months is to, for all of us to say, where am I at in my relationship with God and how can I walk closer with Him? Psalm 1 is, is only six verses, as you see there. It's very, uh, pretty simple in its division. The first three verses talk about a godly person and the last three really talk about an, an ungodly person or a wicked person. And I love what Thomas Watson said about Psalm 1. He said, Psalm 1 may well be called a Christian's guide, for it discovers the quicksands where the wicked sink down and the firm ground on which the saints tread to glory. I hope in Psalm 1 we'll see the firm ground where we tread toward glory. Let's read it together. Psalm 1, if you're there, would you say word? Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth, shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. As Again, as I look at these six verses, um, I see a godly man and an ungodly man. A godly person and an ungodly person. And a very clear description of, of each. Brief, but clear. So we'll start with the first one, and that is the, the godly. The godly person. Again, it says here, of course, blessed is the man. But the word man here is representative of, of all Christians. And so ladies, that's you as well. Men and ladies. And so blessed is this one 
And again, this is for all of us. So the first word is what I titled the sermon, blessed. How many of you this morning would raise your hand if I asked this question, are you blessed? Would you say you're blessed? We say that a lot, don't we? We might say, how you doing? Well, I'm blessed. And we, I think, know what we mean when we say that. But I think a lot of times when people say they're blessed or I'm blessed, they, they're referring to, you know what, life's going okay right now. Maybe my health's pretty good, finances are pretty good, relationships are pretty good. I'm blessed. Things are going all right. It's a nice day outside. I'm blessed. But what we know is that to be this kind of blessed, as in the Psalm 1-1, this kind of godly blessing is much deeper than anything going on in our outward earthly circumstances, right? That's why someone like Nick can get a cancer diagnosis and still say, I am blessed, right? And he did that. Because we know no matter what's going on, we can be poor and say, I'm blessed. We can be sick to the point of death and say, I'm blessed. We can have things in our life falling apart and still say, I am blessed. That's the kind of blessing this is. This is not just being um, happy about something that's going on. This is to be satisfied, content, fulfilled, joyous, and just truly happy no matter what circumstances are attacking your life. So this is the kind of blessing that, that we need. And again, I remind you, we are blessed um, outwardly, right? Millions and millions of Christians in the history of the world and, and other places even today have it much worse off than we do um, as far as stuff, right? Financially and having homes and cars and a nice church building. And so these millions of other poor believers throughout history have said, I'm blessed, because they understand what this blessing is. Think about Job. Now, if you read the first part of Job, you're like, this guy's blessed. He has it all. But then what happens? It's taken away. After it's taken away, and it's a long story, but Job says things like this, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Remember what he says? Blessed be the name of the Lord. And so, we see this picture of someone who lost it all and yet was still blessed. And we know in the end of that story, he was even blessed earthly as well. So I want to say this to us as we dive into that first phrase, blessed is the man. You might have a lot going on in your life right now, and we all do. Some of us do, right? Issues of, of all kinds, but you can still be this type of blessed. Because this type of blessing is found not in what's going on in your life, but in who is Lord of your life. This type of blessing means you're connected to the true vine, which, get, which is Christ, or the chief cornerstone, which is Christ. Connecting to Him and built upon Him, we have this type of blessing. Ephesians 1.3 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. If you are in Christ, then you have all spiritual blessings. Read Ephesians 1. What an amazing chapter. I love verses 1 through 14, especially just giving us these blessings of, of spiritual blessings we have poured out on us through Christ. This kind of blessing comes from when you have been saved, born again, 
your sin has been forgiven, your guilt has been removed, your shame has been taken away, and you know that though you're not perfect, you know you now trust in the one who is perfect. And his righteousness is your righteousness. This kind of blessing, blessed is the man, this kind of blessing is something you feel deep down inside, even if everything else is falling apart. This kind of blessing comes from trusting God regardless of the circumstances. And I would argue that most everybody around us this morning might say, I'm pretty blessed with worldly things. I would argue not many people know the blessing of Psalm 1-1, the contentment, the satisfaction, the joy that comes from Christ. So after hearing all that, can you say this morning, I'm blessed? Are you still blessed? I hope you can say yes. What does he say about the blessed person, the blessed man here? Well, a couple things he says about the blessed man in verse 1. This is kind of a, a negative connotation. Here's the things the blessed man does not do. He does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. He does not stand in the way of sinners. And he does not sit in the seat of the scornful. This is to show us that the man of God, the woman of God, does not go on progressing in sin. Does not, he does not go on progressing in sin. And I, I use that word progressing because that's what it is here. He says walk, stand, and sit. And a lot of people have brought this point out over the years. I was trying to think of a way to illustrate this. Um, back during, uh, what's it called, Black Friday shopping? Y'all do that, Black Friday shopping? Um, I don't, but this year I did. And Jesse and I were walking through the mall in Tupelo. And you'd walk by someone you know, you know, someone you kind of just know, like an acquaintance, right? And what do you do? Hey, how you doing? You keep walking, right? Because we're shopping, we're busy. Hey, good to see you, right? And so then later on we walked by, and from a distance over at the, uh, was it Magnolia Soap, the soap store? Uh, we see Miss Jane and Kayla and their whole little group of shoppers out there. This is going to be a better story if she was here this morning, but she's not. But we saw them, and when you see somebody like that, you don't just walk by and go, hey, and keep walking, right? You stop. And so we stop and shop in that store, but we, we stood around and talked to them for a few minutes, right? We all smelled some soaps, and, and we just kind of talked and mingled and just kind of, you know, we talked for a minute. Um, and so, again, when, there's, a, there's a greater level of involvement between walking by saying hello and stopping and standing around talking, right? But there's an even greater level of involvement. What if, this did not happen, by the way, what if we would have said to them, hey, Meet us in a couple hours over at Outback Steakhouse. Let's sit down and have a meal. Now, we should have done that. It would been a great idea. We didn't. But that would have taken another level of involvement, right, or commitment. To actually go and sit and eat and talk, that's another level of commitment. And so the, the progression, I think you see it here, is walk, stand, sit. And this is, this is to say that the blessed man, the Christian, the one who's saved by grace does not abuse that grace by diving off into progressing in this sinful lifestyle. Now again, we can keep saying it. We always sin. We always fall short. But we don't revel in that. We don't progress in that. We don't keep living in that sin. We repent. We, we confess it. We try to do better, right, in Christ. But notice he says here that not only do I see this progression, but he says the counsel of the ungodly. It's like this man certainly does not go on sinning, but he also does not listen to sinners who drag him down. 
Have you ever had people in your life who can drag you down this way, pull you back into some old ways? He says the blessed man does not listen to that type of person. You know, a lot of people today would say, hey, you don't have to be all faithful to church. Just be a good person. Go to church from time to time. Read your Bible from time to time. You'll be fine. But that's not what the Bible says, right? The Bible says we're to be committed to Christ and the things of Christ and the church. So don't listen to the counsel of the ungodly who might say, don't worry about it, it'll be fine. No, we listen to what the Word says. And the Word says if you don't follow Christ and if you don't care about the things of Christ, it won't be fine, right? That's what this very psalm tells us. Again, the the godly person is not perfect, but he or she recognizes sinful ways repents often, and seeks after holiness. And I hope that's what we're doing. Look at this quote I'm giving you here by Spurgeon on this verse. He says, It is a rich sign of inward grace when the outward walk is changed and when ungodliness is put far from our actions. Then he says, Let others make a mock of sin, of eternity, of hell and heaven, and of the eternal God, But this man, the blessed man, has learned better, right? We've learned better to make a mockery of sin, eternity, and of course, the Lord. So the blessed man uh, does not go on progressing in sin. The second thing I see, and I found this in verse 2, is he does go on progressing in spiritual things. So he's changed by God. He's walking not in the way of sinners, But verse 2 says, but instead of that, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. I love this word delight in verse 2. To delight in something means you truly treasure it, you care about it, you love it. And uh, it's good to delight in things. It's good to delight in your spouse and your children and your family, your church. It's good to delight in these things, but as we saw last week, remember the quote from last week that said, if you cannot uh, turn away from worldly profits, pleasures, and friends to love God, then you don't truly love Him. Remember that quote last week? I'm reminded of that again because a godly person, verse 2, delights in God and delights in the things of God. I've spoken with church members um, in my previous ministries, and one of these, even, one of these quotes I'm going to give you even comes from our church um, from years ago. And I've spoken with church members who have said things like this. You know, I've tried for years, and I just can't make myself read the Bible. Or, I've heard this. I read the Bible sometimes, but when I do, I never get anything out of it. Or, I've tried to be faithful to church, but I just can't do it. I've even had people say this to me. I, I, just have, I just don't have the desire to do the right thing. Or I'm not interested in living a, a holy life, a righteous life, a Christian life. I've, heard, have, I've had all those things said to me in different ways over the years. And my response to those people was probably not as clear as it should have been. But here's my response now. If you have those thoughts in your mind, here's my, I hope, very clear response. If you have no desire for the things of God, then you do not know God. 
I think that's pretty clear. Now, as a Christian, sometimes our desires can go up and down, right? We desire him more or less at times. But if you have no desire, that's a real time to check your heart. Because God, when he saves us, gives us a new heart. That new heart has new desires, new goals, and it usually aligns with his desires and his goals. You cannot be this blessed man if you ignore spiritual things. And what's the thing that he mentions in verse 2? His delight is in, what's it say? The law of the Lord, which for them, of course, was the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch. For us, we have Genesis to Revelation, right? We have the entirety of Scripture, the canon of Scripture to delight in, to treasure. All these truths, all these graces, all these promises are here for us in God's holy word. Do you delight in God's word? We have to, right? I mean, we have to to grow in Christ. I told you the illustration before. I've I've probably told it a a couple of times about the man in Kansas City who was working at some chemical plant. There was an explosion. He lost both his hands. He lost his eyesight. Um, he just he, he lost so many. He had a bad, bad explosion. And he just became a Christian. He wanted to read the Bible. And so he found um, someone that was doing Braille um, with their lips. And so he ordered a copy of this Braille to use. He, he, this lady overseas was doing this. And he when he stuck it to his lips he realized his lips the nerves were messed up he couldn't read the bible that way he was devastated he was going to try to read the bible with his lips but one day as he was trying to do that his tongue touched the braille and he realized he could fill it with his tongue and i read a book about this man back years ago but the at last time he had read through the entire bible four times with his tongue and some of us can't even read it with our eyeballs My point is not to just make us feel guilty, but to ask the question, do we delight in the law of the Lord? Do we delight in his word? I hope we do. The key verse, another key word here, it says, in his law, verse 2, does he meditate? Now, when we think about the word meditate, we may not use that word in church a lot. We probably think about a monk, right? A bald monk sitting somewhere um, meditating or something. But this is a biblical word. It's right here in scripture. And I always like to illustrate it like you're making tea. What if I take a pot of water, put it on the stove, turn it on high, I get the water boiling, I take my tea bag, I drop it in for one second, I pull it out, and then I go make tea. Is that going to work? It's just water, right? We let, what do we do with the tea bag? You soak it. You let it stay in there, right? You let it stay in there for a couple minutes or however long you do to make the tea because that's how the, it, the tea grains soak into the water. And so that's what it means to me to to meditate in Scripture is to let it soak, (laughs) to stay in it, to stay there, keep looking. I mean, how many of us have heard a sermon or read the Bible on a verse you've heard a thousand times, and then you go, wait a minute, there's something new there I didn't see before. Now, it was always there, right? The Word's always the same. It's always been there. Watch this. The meaning that the Bible has for us today is the same meaning it had when it got written, (laughs) when it was written. But sometimes as we are growing, as we're being sanctified, we see some things, right? Or maybe some applications that we didn't see before. And so that's why it's important to meditate, to hear sermons. That's why it's important to, as often as you can, get in the Word, let the Word get into you, soak it in. 
Martin Luther, the reformer, said, This word meditate means to first intently observe the words and secondly to compare it to other scriptures. If you say, I just don't know how to study my Bible, one easy way is to read a passage and then find the cross-reference verses with some Bibles have it, or you can Google it, and compare Scripture with Scripture. Some of those great old Christians that I read after, their Bible study notes are really just them cross-referencing passages. And it's so refreshing to read. Luther went on to say that this type of meditation is a delightful hunting. It's just hunting. It's searching through the Scriptures to compare them, contrast them, and to see how they all fit together. So the blessed one does not walk in the progression of sin, but he delights in the word of God. He meditates in the word, and when does he do it? Verse 2 says what? Day and night. Can't sleep at night? Think on the word of God. Happy about something in your life? Praise him with his word. Afflicted? Pray some of these promises that we need when we're going through struggles. Hey, this doesn't apply, many of you are really busy, it doesn't apply to many people, but if you're sitting around bored, dive into the Word. If you're busy, take a break, get into the Word. We can get into the Word day and night. Jesus said it, again, even more plainly, when he said this, Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. It's pretty, pretty plain and simple, right? We know we need food to eat. We need God's word to survive spiritually. Do you delight in his word? The godly one does. The third thing I see about this godly person, verse 3, is that he is fruitful. He is fruitful. It says, he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth his fruit in his season. Obviously, a tree planted by the water produces fruit. This reminds me, as I studied this, of John 15, 5, when Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abides in me and I in him, the same brings forth much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And so this, this, this idea of a tree being planted in Christ or planted next to the water, that will bring forth fruit. The first time I preached here was, I don't know, I don't know if it was five or six years ago, at, at an association meeting, and a couple of y'all, I think, were here back then. And, again, I, I didn't know anybody. I just came to preach. I knew Brother Bob. I came to preach at a meeting. And I used this illustration um, that I'm about to share with you now. And I still remember that somehow. But, and this illustration comes from a pastor. Uh, his name is Tim Keller. He actually recently passed away. And Keller, in one book he wrote, was just observing churches, studying churches. And he made a point that many churches in the late 1900s, so 1970s, 80s, 90s, many people in the church began to promote faithfulness over everything else. And he said what happened is they saw that so many people were abandoning the church or going away from the church, they said this, if we would just be faithful to show up at church, God will bless it. Things will happen. It'll be great. And so they, they, in Keller's words, they overemphasized faithfulness. And they de-emphasized a biblical order of worship or biblical preaching or biblical church membership or biblical eldership. So they under, 
emphasize the most important things, and they overemphasize just be faithful to show up in the building, right? Show up at church. And Keller's response to that was to, uh, to write about this. And he said, God does not call us to just be faithful, but to also be fruitful. And so we can look at our Christian lives and not just say, well, I've been faithful, which that's great, because that's part of it. We definitely want to be faithful to show up, but faithfulness is more than just showing up. And the scripture tells us repeatedly that as a Christian, our faith will produce fruit. And that's what I see here. This blessed man, he's planted like a tree by the rivers of water, and he brings forth fruit. What kind of fruit do we have in our lives? Again, I don't want to say this wrongly. We should certainly be faithful in our attendance, faithful in hearing the word and serving. But God, is God producing fruit in our lives? That should be a goal. He says that he will bring forth fruit in his season. I love what one Puritan said about this. He said, if the church is afflicted, this should be a season of prayer. If the church is growing, it should be a season of praise. He says, if I hear a sermon, I know that I must be drawing counsel from him. If I'm under temptation, I should lean on the Lord. And he goes on and on, pointing out the fact that there are different seasons of life, and in each season we can still produce fruit for Christ. The final part of that verse says, all he does, verse 3, all he does shall prosper. Not, an, not a worldly prospering, but a, a heavenly prospering, a fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Loving God, loving others, a desire for the things of God. All of these fruits we should be seeking after and seeing in our lives. Spurgeon said, the man who delights in God's word, being taught by it, bringeth forth patience in time of suffering, faith in day of trial, and holy joy in hour of prosperity. So reading all this, what do you think about the blessed man? the blessed woman, the blessed one. He doesn't go toward the progression of sin. He delights in the word, and God blesses it and makes him fruitful. That's, what, that's who we want to be, right? Quickly, let me give you the second one. And I'm going to spend less time on this one because the first part is what we want to be. The second part is the portrait of the ungodly. This is who we don't want to be. Verse 4 says, the ungodly are not so. The ungodly are not like the godly. The ungodly are different. There's a clear contrast here, a clear difference here. He says, what are they like? They're like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Every time I read this verse for most of my life, I picture sitting in my Papa Johnson's living room day after day, it seems like, watching old Western movies Y'all watch Western movies or have family that used to watch Western movies? And in almost every Western movie, you'll see a tumbleweed, right? Just randomly blowing through the, around, like, what's that tumbleweed? It's just like blowing along. And I, I can just picture that. So when I read that, I always think about this. The ungodly are like that tumbleweed, just kind of useless, worthless, just being blown every, every which way. Of course, we know this chaff here is, the shell around a kernel of grain and 
it was, it was nothing. They would take it off and throw it. They would throw it into the air, and it would just blow away. And again, that is, that's the same picture. This, this chaff is worthless, dead, unserviceable, easily carried away. So based on that, my first thought about the ungodly is they have no spiritual life and are easily carried away. See the clear difference. The blessed one of verses 1 through 3 are like a strong tree planted by the water. Full of life, nourishment, they're alive and prosperous spiritually. But the ungodly are not so. I mean, picture that. Picture a big, strong tree producing fruit, beautiful, big, strong tree, and then picture that tumbleweed blowing by, right? There's a clear distinction. Now, sometimes, as a tree, we know, we might be swayed by the winds of life, but in Christ, we'll never fully be uprooted, right? We'll never be knocked down. We will be planted in Him. But the chaff does nothing. And as I think about verse 4, I also make note of just people that just, and I say this often, I think, but just keep God as like a, an accessory to their life or just a small piece of their life. And I'm, I'm reminded of people who just never truly dive into what God has for them. Maybe they don't know what they're looking for. Maybe they're just kind of like church hopping or looking for church, a church to feel comfortable in. I don't know. But I've known people in my life who are going from church to church looking for something. And what they most oftentimes need is Christ. They're looking for something. They're looking for uh, a situation, maybe or whatever, a feeling or somewhere to fit in. Or a big church, they can just kind of sit there and not worry about what's going on. And oftentimes, I want to say, you need Christ. You, you're lost spiritually. You're blind spiritually. You, you need God So because you're, you're, you're just easily blown back and forth, all around. That's what this ungodly person is like. But then verse 5 makes it much more strong than, than I could ever say it. The ungodly shall not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Verse 5, um, verse 5 is interesting because they actually will stand in the judgment, <laughs> but not for long. The ungodly will not stand for long. They will stand to be condemned, not acquitted. And the second part of verse 5 says that they cannot have, there's no sinners in the congregation of the righteous. I would say in today's day and time, most every church has lost people in there, but this is talking about the future. Take your Bible, flip to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. This psalm goes from blessed and delightful and fruitful, and within a couple of verses, goes to judgment and perishing. And Revelation 20 gives us the end of the ungodly. Before I read it, listen, 
When I say ungodly, you might think about the worst person you know, but when I say ungodly, I'm talking about anyone who does not know Christ, right? I think y'all get that. It's not just the worst person you know. It's anybody who's not put their faith in Christ. Anybody who's never been born again who does not love and treasure God. And so this ungodly is is all those who are, are lost. Revelation 20, verse 11. And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books, according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. You see, the ungodly, all those who don't know God, who don't know God through Christ, shall not stand in the judgment. They're going to be in the judgment. But their end, as you see here, is judgment and eternal damnation. They will not, sinners will not end up in the congregation of the righteous. Or to say it this way, right? There will be no sinners in heaven, except those saved by grace, right? I'm quoting Spurgeon a lot because he has a great book on the Psalms. And I love what he says. But he says, Sinners cannot live in heaven. They would be out of their element. Sooner could a fish live in a tree than the wicked in paradise. Heaven would be an intolerable hell to an unrepentant man, even if he could be allowed to enter. But such a privilege shall never be granted to the man who perseveres in his iniquities. Verse 6. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. He's omniscient, right? He knows everything. He knows our way. Why does, how does God know our way? He's ordained it, right? He's planned it from the beginning of time. Before the beginning of time, he has planned it, ordained it. And he's walking, us, walking with us through this, our way, which is glory, which is eternal heaven. But the way of the wicked shall perish. And don't mistake this word perish, by the way, in verse 6. Some religions teach annihilationism, which is to say when someone dies who doesn't know God, they go to hell for a short time, and then they're just done away with forever. That's not the teaching of the Scripture. The teaching of the Scripture is that if you are a Christian, you will spend forever in heaven. And the teaching of Scripture is, if you're not a Christian, then you will spend forever in hell. How do I become a godly person? You must repent of your sin and believe in Christ. I wonder if anybody thought about it, but as you read verses 1, 2, and 3, it it is a picture of Christ. He is truly the blessed one. 
He is the only one who can truly overcome the sin of verse 1 and who truly delights in God the way he ought in verse 2 and produces perfect fruit in verse 3. And so if we're going to be a godly person, if we're going to be a Christian, we must believe in the blessed one in Christ, in him. He makes us right. Once we do that, we will have a desire for the things of God. And then we must, through our faithfulness and our own effort as God gives us grace and mercy to live, we must follow him as best we can, love him as best we can, serve him as best we can. So may the Lord cleanse our hearts and our ways. May we escape the doom of the ungodly, and may we enjoy the blessedness of the righteous. Let's pray.